Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah ve salatu ve selamu Resulullah. Allahümme salli ve sallam ve zil mübarek ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sallam. Allahümme salli ve sallam ve zil mübarek ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sallam. Allahümme salli ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sallam. Allahümme fıkhihna fil din ve alimna terbiyyin. نفتح علينا فتوح العارفين بك اللهم طهر قلوبنا من النفاق وأخلص نوايانا في سبيلك يا رب العالمين بسم الله. so we left off um, for anyone who was not here last week or even in the previous weeks uh, welcome or welcome back depending on what it has been um, we talked about in the very beginning that the 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 burda of Imam Busiri rahimahullah has 10 sections and the first section of the poem is related to love and specifically love of the Prophet and we spent a lot of time on that alhamdulillah and then the second section of the poem is related to the nafs disciplining the soul and so we had kind of an introduction to that last time and this time we're going to cover verses 16 to 21 because they're all around uh, the same meaning. So I'm going to read 16 to 21 and then I'm going to come back uh, and read their translation inshallah. So he starts off بالمعاسي كسر شهوتها إن التعام يقوي شهوة النهم والنفس كالطفل إن تهمله شبعنا حب الرداع وإن تفطمه ينفطم فاصرف هواها وحاذر أن توليه إن الهوى ما تولى يسمي أو يصمي Sounds like my wife's phone. No? It's the same talk. Is it mine? It's not mine. It's yours. Okay. Yeah, it sounded like Sheikh Hamza was talking about the poem. <laughs> May Allah preserve him. That's fine. وَرَاعِهَا وَهِيَ فِي الْأَعْمَالِ سَائِمَةٌ وَإِنْ هِيَ اسْتَحَلَّةَ الْمَرْعَى فَلَا تُسِمِي So these lines could be narrated as the following. Who will help me curb a bolting rebel's willfulness in the way that a rebel stallion may be curbed with reins? And of course, we'll spend some time on each one. Think not to break unlawful whims by satisfying them. Food only increases a glutton's desires. The ego is like a child. Neglect it and it will grow still suckling. Only if you wean it will it be weaned. Guard it as it grazes in the pasture of deeds. And should it find the grazing sweet, let it not roam. Frustrate its whims. Be wary of giving it power. For whims pollute or pervert whatever they control. Many a delight has it approved, which proves murderous. For some do not know that the fat contains a poison. So most of the commentary is going to come in the end, but we'll go piece by piece, inshallah. So number 16. Who will help me curb a bolting rebel's willfulness in the way that a rebel stallion may be curbed with reins? So what he's talking about here is he's talking about the, the bolting rebel is his nefs. And obviously the rebel stallion is a rebel stallion. So the, the imagery here is that of a, an, a horse that is very powerful, that is very free-spirited, and it's running in all types of different directions and that horse in order to be ridden it has to be curbed so the reins have to be put on the horse there has to be a saddle on the horse and then eventually it has to accustom itself to being ridden and so he's saying who is it that's going to help me to rein in my nefs just the way that such a horse is reined in and uh, so of course this is a continuing of the narrative of the poem the poet with himself uh, if this nefs is not taking heed through the warners that we had last week, what were the two warners last week? Which is the warners of old age and decrepitude. Remember he's saying the warners of old age and decrepitude are there, but he's not paying attention to these warners. So he says, if these warners aren't going to be enough, then who's it, who can help me with this, this nefs that's just out of control? My nefs is out of control. How am I, who can help me with this? Who can help me to discipline my soul? So he's asking for someone in many ways to jump in and help and discipline with the nefs and, and show it some strength and some force. 
And this, of course, brings up the question of whether or not a person needs a shaykh. Very, very important question in Islamic history and in the world today as well. Uh, especially because in the world today, especially for Americans, we don't really like to have people that tell us to do things. So the question of do you need someone who can help you with your spiritual discipline, with your, with your development, uh, is a big question. And then who would that person be? Um, is, we're not going to go into a whole lot of detail on it because it's very hard to find people who can be legitimately uh, responsible for such uh, an important task. But suffice, we'll, we'll just have some reflections on uh, this question and the answer to this question when it was posed by Abu Ishaq al-Shatibi rahimahullah to Abdullah ibn Abbad who was, uh, so the first of these people, Abu Ishaq al-Shatibi, there's two famous al-Shatibis in Muslim history, just so you know, for your reference. Uh, one of those is buried in Egypt. One of those is buried in Egypt, and he's al-Shatibi the Qari. He's the one who wrote the, the, the poem that talks about the different um, chains of recitation of the Qur'an and the different modes of recitation of the Qur'an and, and then how they are how to memorize them and so on and he put it in one poem uh, so he's a very famous person in the study of the Qur'an Shaltibi. the other Ash-Shaltibi is Abu Ishaq Ash-Shaltibi from uh, from Andalus and he was a very famous scholar of legal philosophy so specifically in the realm of Usul Fiqh he had major contributions to the philosophy of Islamic law and how we think about the way that the law works and how we understand that in relation to individuals and societies. So this is, it's the second one who's writing another person this question. So the person that he's writing this question to is Abdullah ibn Abbad, who used to be, he was the khatib at that time of Al-Qarawiyin, Masjid Al-Qarawiyin. Qarawiyin is the oldest university in the world. Many times people say Al-Azhar is the oldest university in the world. It's not. Qarawiyin is. And Qarawiyin is just slightly older than Al-Azhar. It's in Morocco. And importantly enough, it was founded by a woman, Fatima Fihri, rahimahullah, who inherited a, a large amount of money. And then she decided from this inheritance that she wanted to start this jama. It's the oldest university in the world. So this man, Abdullah ibn Abbad, was the khatib of that university. He was the one who gave khutbah there. And Abu Ishaq al-Shatibi sent him this question. And the question is, uh, is it an obligation on the one who's traveling the path to Allah to have a spiritual guide to help him or her on their education, development, and maturity? So someone who is journeying towards Allah. Of course, in some ways, we're all journeying towards Allah, just as everything is in submission to Allah. Some people are more or less conscious of it. But someone who is very seriously trying to come closer to Allah, do they have to have a shaykh or not? And basically the answer is, uh, the answer, I'm going to summarize it, because I don't want to bore you guys too much. But if you actually go online and type in this question, you'll find the whole translation of the answer from Sheikh Abdullah bin Hamid Ali Hafidhullah, uh, may Allah preserve him the first African American Muslim to graduate from Qarawiyin so it's the same university, may Allah preserve him he has a nice translation of this Imam Sahib also has a nice translation of it they both took it from the footnotes of Sheikh Abdul Fattah Abu Buddha rahimahullah his commentary on Risalat al-Mustarshideen the treatise for the seeker of guidance so it's online, you can find it. So I'm just going to summarize. So basically what he says is that there's two types of shaykh. The first type of shaykh is the shaykh of only the exoteric knowledge. Only outward knowledge. So basically the shaykh of halal and haram, what's allowed, what's not allowed, and so on. And then there's a shaykh that's a shaykh of esoteric and exoteric knowledge. This in and of itself is an important point. So what is one of the subtle points about this is that this person who's knowledgeable not only of outward rules but also of spiritual refinement and development and all of these kind of things, they have to also be a scholar of the outward. The scholar of the inward must also be a scholar of the outward. If not, then it's very likely that they're going to result in problems. 
because you can't actually have serious inward development without uh, a, a appreciation and uh, obedience to that which is outward. So the outward has to be followed. So if the person is knowledgeable of this inward self, then they must be uh, respectful and knowledgeable of the outward as well. So he says basically there's two. And for a person who has a lot of self-control, for a person who has a lot of discipline, person who, um, some people are just like that. You know, you tell them to do something, they do it. Some people, they're really, they're really in control of themselves. If they're like that, then he says they only need a sheikh of ta'aleem. They only need a sheikh of ta'aleem, of education, outward education. And that will be enough for them because in what they're exposed to in the outward education, they'll know what they're supposed to do, and that will be enough for them. Uh, and then he says that the second category uh, is the person who doesn't really have a whole lot of discipline. They don't really know how to control themselves. If they're left on their, to their own, they flounder all over the place. And this kind of person needs one who is knowledgeable in both. An important condition on this, you know, he says that the early scholars of Islam, most of them didn't have direct shaykhs that they would follow. You know, and he says that this is known from the works of Abu Talib al-Makki, who wrote a book called Qutun Qulub. If you're interested in it, Imam Zaid is doing a commentary on it, uh, on his live stream. So you can follow the live stream for, I forget what the live stream is called, but if you look around, you'll find it. He's doing a commentary on Qutun Qulub by Abu Talib al-Makki. And that was kind of the source of much of what came in the Ihya of Imam al-Ghazali afterwards. Uh, you also see it in the works of Al-Harith and Muhasibi, which is the one who wrote the treaties for the seekers of guidance that we were talking about a minute ago. Um, from their works, it seems that you know they didn't have a shaykh directly. Uh, and that was the path of the early people. But then later on, people started to... Um, the development has kind of curved. So later on, people started to you know, not be able... To, they weren't as disciplined as they used to be. So they started encouraging people to have someone who instructs them in these things. Then what happened is that when you when you have someone who's instructing you in spiritual matters, they have to be very trustworthy. Because this is something that is very, very serious, right? Especially if you're going to really follow that. They have to be someone who's very, very trustworthy. And so they say, even in Imam al-Ghazani's time, he says that there's so few people like this that are trustworthy anymore, that it's better to not even take this route. <laughs> And Imam Ghazali was in 500 after Hijrah, and now we're in over 400. This is 900 years ago, right? So that is not to say that these people don't exist. It's just to say that it's uh, it's very hard to find them. So some of the some modern scholars, for example, will say that the path is knowledge and sahaba. The safe way to go on this, unless you can really find someone you can trust, is just knowledge and sahaba. So it's mean you gain knowledge that's correct from people who deserve to be teaching and understand what they're talking about, and you spend time with righteous people. And in doing so, you'll make the development that you need to make. Allahu Alam, there's different perspectives on it, but uh, that brings up that question. Um, I would say from personal experience that you definitely need someone who can point things out to you. It's just it has to be someone who is qualified to do so. Um, because you make... Like everything in life, when you're trying to do it yourself, it takes a whole lot longer and you make a lot more mistakes than when you're trying to do it with someone who knows what they're doing. The problem is, again, you have to know, they have to know what they're doing. You know, I usually think of sports whenever I think of something like this. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, it, they're very similar. If you're trying, for example, say you want to learn how to golf, pick a, pick a very a sport that I had to quit because I didn't have enough patience. This was, of course, pre-age 18. Golfing is only done before the age of 18 when it's very cheap to golf. After you turn 18, you pay adult rates. You should no longer be golfing. But it's a different issue. So if you're trying to learn how to golf, then you could go and just swing the club over and over again, and maybe eventually you'll get halfway decent, right? That would be it's possible. Or maybe you can read some books because you trust them and they're qualified and so on, and maybe you'll swing a little bit better. You might get there. Or you could have someone who's like a master golfer and they teach you, and not only a master golfer, but a master teacher of golf, and they teach you how to swing properly, and you do very well. But what else could also could happen is that you want someone to teach you how to golf, and they come to teach you how to golf, and they don't know how to golf. And if they teach you wrong, that's even worse, because it's going to take you a whole lot of time to correct that wrong education that you got. 
So these things are very sensitive. So this is uh, number one here. The next line of the poem, Think not to break unlawful winds by satisfying them. Food only increases a glutton's desires. So basically what he's referring to here is shows someone has dealt with these issues practically. So the thing is here, if you have a desire, right? Say for example, someone has a weakness for chocolate chip cookies that are freshly baked, they've just come out of the oven, there's nice cold milk nearby, and it just looks like an amazing chocolate chocolate chip cookie, right? Or maybe you have a weakness for brownies, which might be over there, right? And you say to yourself, you know what, I'm just, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to eat one, that way my, my desire is satisfied, and I won't eat anymore. See, the problem is then the next week when you come back, you're going to eat more than one. Because the base desire that was there has been strengthened. It wasn't that you got rid of it. Right? It wasn't that, okay, I'm just going to do it. And this, of course, applies to a lot of things. People do this for all kinds of sins. So I'm struggling with this issue or that issue. And what I'm going to do, I'm just going to satisfy right now. And then I'll go back to doing good. And then once I get this out of the way, I just ask Allah's forgiveness and I go back. Right? So the problem is that, that base thing that's trying to call you to do what you're not supposed to do in satisfying it, you strengthened it so what he's saying is think not to break unlawful winds by satisfying them food only increases a glutton's desires so this is what's called um, I believe if I remember correctly Shaykh Ali might remember Tashbih Bunni like when the, in the beginning of the line there is a, a statement that's made and the second part of the line clarifies the statement. So there's a metaphor or an example that clarifies it. So it says, don't think that you're going to break them by satisfying them. Food only increases a glutton's desire. So you're like, no, I'll just satisfy my food craving with this thing. But now your tendency towards food cravings has increased. So it doesn't actually uh, work. Then he says, the ego is like a child, neglect it, and it will grow still suckling. Only if you wean it, will it be weaned. So the ulama, they use a number of analogies for this nafs issue. The one of them is the child, and the other one is the horse. You can tell what was common to people at that time. But the one of them is the horse, you know, reining it and so on. They talk about how the horse, it doesn't immediately... Uh, when it, when you first come to the horse, it rebels against everything. But once you've trained it, then it doesn't want to do it unless the saddle... It's not going to do anything unless the person is there to command it. And the baby, they say, is the same way. That the baby that's nursing, if all it's used to is nursing, and then you go to uh, wean it, you know, you want to stop the nursing. You go to wean the baby, the first thing the baby's going to do is cry and rebel and it doesn't like it and so on. But once you force the baby to wean, after the baby's weaned, it's not going to go back to nursing again. Right? So I'll give you a practical example for our modern lives to practice, inshallah. And maybe people will commit to it, maybe they won't. It's kind of it's difficult. It is with sugar. So unfortunately, almost everything in our entire life has sugar in it. There's a lot of sugar in everything. Uh, but I won't, I'm not asking you to cut out all sugar. Only sugar in beverages. So coffee and tea, obviously all other sodas and stuff. Now we do that. Stay away from them as much as possible. But coffee and tea, uh, we usually have them with sugar, right? You have some tea, you put some sugar in it. You have some coffee, you put some sugar in it. What happens when you first try to drink something without sugar is it's really hard because you're used to the sugar. And you're like, oh, this doesn't taste the same. And I need this and so on and so forth. But even if you replace it, replace it with like honey, or just don't use anything, okay? If you replace it with honey, make the niya that you're getting shifa, just while you're at it, because there's shifa and honey. But, say you replace it with nothing, right? You're just going to have, instead of coffee with milk and sugar, I'm just going to have coffee with milk. And do that for like a month or two, and then go back and try to put regular white sugar in your coffee. You can't do it. It's disgusting. It's just, it's, it's too sweet. You're not used to that sweetness anymore, and it's way too sweet. So the nefs is very similar. The nefs, when you first try to break away from something that, you're, that your nefs is attached to, usually, obviously right now we're talking about this in the area of what is haram, or what is makruh, could also be in what is disliked. Or it can be also in what is mubah, what is permissible. Because if you spend too much time in the permissible, it's a problem as well. So if your nefs is attached to these things, 
when you initially just try to pull away, it doesn't, it's not going to go so easily. But once you get used to it, then it's a little bit easier. You know, it comes with time. And then he says, guard it as it grazes in the pastures of deeds, in the pasture of deeds, and should it find the grazing sweet, let it not roam. So the idea again, you know, watch your nafs. You get in the practice now of watching it. So you find all of a sudden that it's getting attached to something. It's enjoying something a little bit too much, and you pull it back. You pull the reins a little bit. Something, obviously, some things you're allowed to enjoy. You should enjoy salat. You should enjoy the company of righteous people. You should enjoy giving charity. You should enjoy being in the service of others. You should enjoy uh, learning and worship and all that kind of stuff. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about other things. Like it shouldn't enjoy talking just aimlessly. Other people talk aimlessly. Talking aimlessly shouldn't enjoy talking aimlessly. Shouldn't enjoy overeating. It requires some pulling back. Shouldn't enjoy eating too much sweets, too much, you know, all this kind of stuff. It takes some pulling back. So you watch it. See how is it result? How is it acting in these different situations? And if I need to pull it back, I'm gonna pull it back. Then he says, frustrate its whim. Be wary of giving it power. For whims pollute or pervert whatever they control. So if you, you know, if this thing is here and you keep giving into it, it's going to be in control. So once it gets polluted, it's going to take you into all different directions. Many a delight has it approved, which proves murderous. For some do not know that the fat contains a poison. This maybe doesn't really make sense to us because Americans don't eat fat. It's not something that we kind of like enjoy. You know, people don't say, you know what? Let me get the ghee out. And it's going to make the egg so good. But in, but in many places, and especially in the time that the poem is being written, like to have some a little bit of chunk of fat with the meat or whatever it might be is a really nice thing. So what he's saying is they think the delight, you know, it seems delightful, but they don't realize that there's poison in that fat. You know, and at face value, it seems like it's good. And you enjoy it and you love it. But it's actually killing you. Right. And this applies to so many things. You know, the, the closest place that this probably applies to for most people, uh, who, and especially people who are unmarried more, is love that falls in the wrong place. You know, it seems so attractive and it seems so, 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 so wanted immediately at the time, but you don't realize that it's killing you. Spiritually, it's killing you. It's taking you away. Uh, power is another one. Power feels so good and it feels so nice to be strong, to, to lord over others. Makes you feel like you're so much in control and the nefs just loves it. But it's destroying the nefs. Destroying the nefs. Popularity. You know, now it feels so good. Everyone likes me. They all love me. So on and so forth. But it's feeding the nefs in a bad way. Right? So all of these are there. So now we'll go into some of the commentary. Imam Ghazali at the Ihya, he has a very beautiful section on disciplining the soul. And this has been translated. I would encourage people to seek it. Uh, it's called, I think it's called just Disciplining the Soul. It has a reddish-orange cover. Uh, very nice translation. So he says that the path for curing the illnesses of the hearts is in leaving one's base desires, and the source of their illnesses is in following one's base desires. So what he's talking about here is a shahuat. Talaka shahuat is the foundation of curing one's soul of its illnesses. Because the nafs is going to always push you towards the shahuat the thing that you desire, and you have to fight the nafs then. So he says that one of the things that comes there is the verse where it says, that those who lower their voice in the presence, that those who lower their voice in front of Allah, in front of the Messenger of Allah then those are the ones whom Allah has tested their hearts. He has tested their hearts and they've proven to be truthful and they have a great reward and forgiveness from... Yeah, they have a great forgiveness and reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So one of the things that's said about that verse is that this means... Uh, that those who... Their heart has been tested. Their heart has had the shahwat. The love of base desires has been removed from their hearts. Not there anymore. Uh, and Sufyan Athori, rahimahullah, he said, I did not treat anything more difficult upon me as treating my nafs. He says, I never competed with anything that was so difficult as my nafs. 
Because one time it's for me, and one time it's against me. Sometimes it's helping me, sometimes it's hurting me, and I'm always going back and forth against it. It's so difficult. Sufyan al by the way, just so we understand who these people are, Sufyan al was a giant. Sufyan al was a great scholar of fiqh and a great scholar of hadith. He was from the generation of the imams. Uh, so he, you know, he's from the category of people that had he done so and had his students done so, he would have been like the four imams. Sufyan al on is on that level. Uh, and, and there's an interesting um, uh, thing that we came across recently where Ibn Uyayna, uh another Sufyan, and one of them saw the other one in a dream after they had passed away. You know, and they told him, like, what should we do? And they had this conversation in the dream about you know, leaving, having good thought of Allah and trying to do that which is good and staying away from bad deeds and so on, but this is what was beneficial to them. So Sufyan al was a big person, and as he's such a big person, he's saying, I didn't uh, have anything more difficult than this. And this is very important, because these kind of things, nobody is safe from them. There is no such thing as someone who is safe from these issues. If you think you're safe from these issues, you already were destroyed by it. So even the greatest of scholars, even the most pious of people, they struggle against themselves. And then I mentioned this to you guys last week, that one shaykh we were talking to him recently, he said, Do my, does my resolve change? My resolve doesn't change. But what did he say? So my intentions, every single day I have to check them. Every single, I always have to check them. My resolve is there to do this good, to try to serve the, the ummah of Muhammad wasallam, and so on. But my niyyah, I have to check my niyyah always. My sincerity, I always have to check. And then Hassan, he said, uh, Rahimahullah, the unruly animal uses the same terms. The unruly animal is not more in need of rains than your nafs. So this animal that you rein in, it doesn't need that rain more than your nafs needs the rains. So then Imam Ghazani, he goes on to say that there's four means for disciplining the self. If you want to discipline the self, there's four means for disciplining the self. Some of these are going to come in the lines of poetry that are, that are following. So we won't cover them in detail now, but they'll come, inshallah. So these four things are, number one, eat less. Three of them are all less. Eat less, sleep less, speak less. One, two, three, eat less, sleep less, speak less. All of them are very natural desires. Have a desire to eat, have a desire to sleep, have a desire to, to, uh, to speak. You know, people love to speak. And so do all of these things less. If you want to discipline the nafs, do all of these things less. Cut down your food. Obviously, you have to eat. Eating is not mubah. Eating is wajib. Eating, you have to eat. You can't not eat, right? Because you would be causing harm to yourself. But overeating is the problem. Or eating out of like, eating things that are just useless for you, you know, because that's what looks so great and good. I'm going to eat that instead of the thing that's good. Allah help us to eat our vegetables, inshallah, and meat. <laughs> I struggle with this. So number one is eat less. Number two, sleep less. Sleep less. Sleeping less is always also difficult. Some of these, some people will struggle with some of them more than others. Some of them struggle with some more than others. So sleep less. Obviously, again, you have to do some sleeping. You shouldn't be destroying yourself. You shouldn't drive yourself into terrible health. You shouldn't drive yourself into mental or spiritual or emotional uh, disruption as a result of your lack of sleep. But you also shouldn't overindulge in the sleep. Okay. And number three is speak less. Um, speak less, I don't know. I, I, I believe that this is going to come up later. But I think that this is really extremely, extremely, extremely important. We talk way too much about way too many things that we don't understand. And we do it because we want to feel good. Or we want to get something off of our chest. Or we want to do whatever. But it's just really not necessary. And dis disciplining the tongue is one of the most difficult things to do. And one of the most important things to do. It's very, very difficult. But very, very important. So we have to try to speak less, inshallah. And number four that is mentioned is to be patient over dealing with people. This is very important as well. So you can eat less and you can sleep less and you can speak less and probably most of these are just going to be very internal focused. But when you deal with people, you really get tested as to how you're going to interact. You know, 
how am I going to interact? Am I going to be patient in dealing with them? Am I going to be um, um, energetic in my service of them? Am I going to be caring for them? Am I going to be concerned for them? And these things are not easy. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ, he said that the person can reach by the level of their good character, the level of the one who stands in the night in prayer and fasts during the day. So you may have someone who stands in the night in prayer and they fast during the day and mashallah, these are great acts of worship. Pray in the night, great act of worship. Now, there's nothing stronger in the acts of worship than praying in the night. And fasting during the day, great act of worship. But someone else could just have good character and they reach the same level. Some of the scholars, they comment on, they said, why is this the case? So because when you fast during the day and you pray during the night, you're fighting against just yourself. Right? Your, your struggle is internal. But when you have good character, your struggle is internal and external. It's much, much different. You have to fight what your nafs is telling you in dealing with the other person. Who are they to talk to me this way and this and that and I don't have time and all of these kind of things. You're struggling with the internal stuff from your nafs. And they're also struggling with the the impact from the person on the outside. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ also said, That the believer who has interacts with the people and is patient over the harm that comes as a result is better than the believer who does not interact with the people and does not have patience over the harm that comes as a result. You have to be in the midst of it to be in the midst of it, to decide whether or not this so-called spiritual progression is actually a spiritual progression, to get tested on the ground. And we see this as we talked about before from the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ lived day to day in between his people, dealing with all kinds of madness and all kinds of mistreatment and all kinds of difficulties. Uh, social struggles, political struggles, all kinds of things. The Prophet ﷺ was right in the middle of it. So we have to then be patient over people. So he says four means for disciplining the self. Eat less, sleep less, speak less, and be patient over people. Then he continues to say that the human being has three major enemies. The human being has three major enemies. Uh, and, and you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says that... Uh, I'm creating this human being from teen. Uh, so if I, when I apportion this human being and I breathe my spirit into this human being, then fall to this human being in prostration. One of the amazing things Imam al Ghazali says, he says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I created this human being from, from dirt. So the human being is from dirt. And then he says, then I, I put this dirt in, in, and I apportion it in a beautiful way. And then, Then after that, the dirt, he breathed his, his spirit into the dirt. That's how Adam was created, right? So in this act, he says that the body of the human being is related to dirt. And the soul of the human being is related to this gift from Allah. That he breathed from his spirit into the human being. So you see which side is supposed to take precedence. You know. أَقْبِلْ عَلَى نَفْسِي وَاسْتَكْمِلْ فَضَائِلَهَا فَإِنَّكَ بِالنَّفْسِ لَا مِنْ جِسْمِ إِنْسَانِ The poet, he said, you know, go towards your nafs and, and, and make it from, you know, glorify and, and perfect its virtues. Because by your nafs and not by your body are you a human being. It's the nafs that makes you the human being, not the body. So make sure that the nafs, you're putting time into it. He says, uh, um, uh, what did he say? You know, are you are you you keep that are you you're going and you keep you're serving your body and you put so much energy into serving your body. Are you seeking profit in that which there is failure? And then he says after that, that go towards your nafs and purify your nafs, make your nafs stronger. So the human being has enemies that are preventing it from elevating beyond this material level into a higher realm of submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of, of spiritual enlightenment. And he says these three 
Difficulties are number one. Your first enemy is the dunya. Your first enemy is the dunya. And the way for fighting this enemy is to have zuhr. So the first enemy is this life. And the way to fight this life is to not want it. To have asceticism in the life itself. One of the most difficult but great definitions of zuhr, some of them uh, attributed to Imam Ahmed, rahimahullah, was that zuhud is to have the entire world in your hand, but not in your heart. Sitting right there in front of you, you have it. You have a home, you have whatever, you have all of these things, but it's not in your heart. That's a very difficult level to attain. A lot of people, they say, MashaAllah, you know, Imam Ahmed, he said zuhud is to have it in your hand and not have it in your heart. So he said, Brother, Alhamdulillah, I have it. It's just not in my heart, but it's actually in their heart. So just because you have it, doesn't don't assume it's not in your heart. It's very difficult. But the first enemy is the dunya. And people are very much servants of the dunya. Everything is about how do I get more? How do I get more money? How do I get more prestige? How do I get more power? How do I have a bigger house? Now, of course, there's a standard of living that is necessary for human beings' dignity. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you know going way, 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 way beyond that. And there's so many examples we don't even have to get into it. The second one that's the enemy of the self is the shaitan. And the person's job in relation to it is to do mukhalafa, to disobey. The shaitan is telling you, shaitan ya'idukum al-faqr. You know, shaitan is, is swearing to you that you're going to be poor. Don't give in charity, shaitan is swearing that you're going to be poor. Well, Allah swears, gives you, promises you that you're going to have forgiveness. You know, so there's. Shaitan messes with us on certain things and we have to fight it. And the third one is the nafs. The third enemy is the nafs, the soul that can go for us or it can go against us. And it calls us towards desires, towards shahwat. We have to go against those shahwat. So then the, the nafs must be fought. And a number of people said beautiful things about this. One of them was the statement of Ja'far ibn Humayd, rahimahullah. And he said, Beautiful statement. He said, anyone understand this? Because if not, then I won't repeat it. <laughs> he said that the scholars of knowledge and the scholars of wisdom have all agreed that a na'im with a capital N, meaning the hereafter, is only accomplished by leaving the na'im with a lowercase n in this life. So the first one is the hereafter is not acquired except by leaving that which is, uh, you know, the bounties of this life. You don't get the you don't get the bounties of the next life except by leaving the bounties of this life. That's the point, the meaning of what he's saying. And there's a very, very scary thing that the Prophet ﷺ said to his companions, two of them in particular, Abu Bakr and Umar that he said to them one night, you know, he went out in the middle of the night. Kharaj Rasulullah in the middle of the night and he was in Medina. And he left in the middle of the night out of hunger. He couldn't sleep because he was hungry. And this in and of itself deserves deliberation. Because the Prophet ﷺ, the community was doing well in Medina. You know, he left in the middle of the night, he was hungry. And he ran into Abu Bakr He said, Ya Abu Bakr, What is it that brings you out? He says, says, I swear, O Messenger of Allah, nothing brought me out here except I'm hungry. I can't sleep, so I'm just walking around. So the Prophet and Abu Bakr said, let's go walk together. And they walk around. And they come, they run into Umar radiallahu They say, Ya Umar, what is it that brings you out? He says, nothing brings me out except hunger. Same thing, same answer. And they say, the same thing that brought you out, brought us out. So they're walking around. They say, why don't we go visit so-and-so, the Ansari. He's known to be very wealthy. He has more. And so they go to this person's house. They knock on his door, he says, Alhamdulillah, this is the best gift that I could ever have. 
to have the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and his two close companions visit me in the middle of the night. He says, Alhamdulillah, this is the best gift I can have. What a blessing. You came to my door. He said, what's going on? He said, we're hungry. He said, slaughters the sheep, make the food, everything, right? They eat the food. Prophet ﷺ, they leave afterwards, they're walking in the city afterwards, you know, like, Alhamdulillah, we got this blessing, this na'im, we got this blessing. And the Prophet ﷺ tells them, Wallahi, you're going to be asked about this. Then you will be asked on that day about the blessings that you had. Very scary. Very, very scary. So you're going to be asked about this blessing. So imagine these people, after all of the struggle that they went through, all of the years of persecution and being driven out of their homes and they arrive to Medina and they go through their struggle they leave their house hungry and they get some food and Allah and the Prophet tells them you're going to be asked about this food so this food that you put in your mouth you're going to be asked about it what did you do with it the energy that you got as a result you're going to be asked about it what are you doing with your time what did you do with your efforts is your mind you know of course Abu Bakr and Umar they know they're, they're from the rank of people that the, the presence of the remembrance of Allah does not leave their minds, does not leave their hearts. They know that. But the Prophet ﷺ is establishing something for us to think about. So this should be like, for many Muslims in America, something that's very, very serious. So he said, all of the scholars of knowledge and experience of wisdom, they agree that you don't attain the other na'im until you leave this na'im. You have to be focused on the hereafter. Someone said to Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, he said, when should I speak? He said, He said, when should I speak? He said, if you have a desire for silence. Then he said, and when should I be silent? He said, When should I be silent? He said, if you have a desire for speaking. So you hear what he's saying? You work against the desire. <laughs> yeah, uh, he says, you know, when should I be silent? When should I speak? He said, if you want to be silent, if you have a desire to be silent, that's the time when you should speak. Because you're speaking at that time, it's going to be very measured. I don't actually want to talk. So I'm forcing myself to talk because I need to. I'm going to say what I need to say. So the opposite side of it, when should I be silent? Said, if you feel the desire to talk. If you really feel like you need to talk, you need to get it out, so just be silent. Because it's going to go too far. You know, so he says these two sides. Again, that idea of you don't feed it, you don't get rid of the desire by feeding it. You go against it, going against it. Malik ibn Dinar, just as a side point, I, I think I mentioned this before, but there's a commonly under, it's commonly understood amongst people that you can only say, may Allah be pleased with them. For the Sahaba, and that for the gener- for the people who came afterwards, you're supposed to say, "Rahimahullah, may Allah have mercy on them." That's commonly done, but it doesn't have to be that case. And uh, Imam Nawawi he comments on this. Uh, actually, Shaykh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghudda puts it in his footnotes of one of his books that Imam Nawawi said. Uh, I believe it was in an adhkar in his book, an adhkar, very important and beautiful book. I think it's been translated now. Uh, he said, "Yustahab al-taradi wal-tarahum ala al-ulama'i wal-salihin." You know, like anyone who's a scholar or a righteous person, it's 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 mustahab. It's recommended to do al-taradi or al-tarahum, which means you say "Radi Allahu An" or "Rahimahullah." So these are not, you know, these are not issues of like black and white. I'm only clarifying this because I was once, you know, accosted for it that I was giving. Sometimes I wonder about our people. May Allah protect us. You know, I was giving a khatib after Fajr one day in the masjid. And a brother started yelling at me after Fajr because I said, an for one of the four imams. I'm just kind of like, brother, we just, I think it was Ramadan too. <laughs> you know, like, it's Fajr. I prayed in the masjid. It's Ramadan. Like, really? It's the first thing you're going to do in your day is yell at me? This isn't, it's not very nice. Then I I tried to explain to him that you know Imam Nawawi said otherwise and he walked away. May Allah forgive him and us. So I'm just pointing it out so that you don't become victims of this uh, desire to say these things. And of course I'm not. 
I don't. I'm not claiming that I'm innocent from such base desires. I've told you guys my story about wanting to correct the Adam for drinking with his left hand, so you already know about my base desires. So Malik ibn Dinar he used to walk in the markets. Look at these people, the way that they think about themselves. It says he used to walk in the markets, and anytime he would see something that he had a desire for, he would say to himself, <laughs> he tell his nafs. He sees something that he wants, he tells his nafs, have some patience, because I'm only not getting you this thing because you're so honored in, in my eyes. You know, I don't want, he's talking to his nafs, I don't want you to be debased. I want you to be elevated. So right now you want that thing, I'm only stopping you from getting that thing so that you can be honored and, and elevated. This is Malik ibn Dinar, great, great man. Also someone who was, you know, Malik ibn Dinar was someone who was not righteous. They say he can, even he used to have a drinking problem. And then it was his his daughter, it was his daughter, right? And then Miriam Amiri just shared this recently, you can look at it. But it was, he used to have a drinking problem. Eventually when he had a child and stuff, he stopped and he realized that He's not supposed to, the child died, he saw the child in a dream, like all of these things happened that he realized I need to turn my life around. He turned his life around, became one of the great scholars and pious people in Muslim history. So everything is always possible. And he said, you know, this is what he said. He would go in the marketplace, tell his nefs, have some patience. I'm stopping you from this so that you can be elevated. He's the same person who they saw, someone saw him in a dream after he died. They asked him, what did you find with Allah? And he said, I found a lot of sins. So I found a lot of sins, and I found that they were forgiven. And they were forgiven because I thought well of Allah. I thought well of Allah, that Allah can forgive me, Allah can have mercy on me, Allah, can, Allah is so great, Allah is so generous. I know I have so many shortcomings. He recognized his own weakness, and he recognized Allah's greatness. He said, and then when I met Allah, what did I find? I found a lot of sins, and I found that they were all forgiven because Allah is so, because I thought so well of Allah. That he fulfilled those, he, he forgave him of those sins. So it comes down to this. Imam Ghazali says it comes down to this that the person It's a very, very heavy and difficult statement. He said, What it comes down to is this that the person only takes from this life that which repels. That which repels contemplation and remembrance. So what is he saying? He's saying your whole point in life is to contemplate and remember Allah. To think about Allah, to think about Allah's blessings, to think about His Messenger This is your only goal in life. So what do you take from this world? You take only that which will stop you from being stopped from doing that. So there's some things that are going to stop you from remembering Allah, right? Only take from this world what's going to not let that happen. So this is your perspective on life. Why am I doing the things that I'm doing right now? I'm only doing these things so that I can be more in the remembrance of Allah. So that I can be more in thinking about Allah and His blessings and being in servitude to Him and so on. On this on this idea, he tells a very funny story of Ibrahim al-Khawas. All of these, sometimes these stories are hyperbole. Okay, just to be aware of this. Sometimes the stories are hyperbole. Sometimes they're true, but our minds are not capable of understanding them. So sometimes the story is an exaggeration. Sometimes the story is true, but our minds are just, you know, we're too, we can't actually fathom the reality of the story. So Ibrahim al-Khawas, who was a very pious person, says that one day he was walking around. And he was walking around and he, um, he found some pomegranate, you know. Pomegranate is such a beautiful and amazing and nice fruit. You know, when you think about how a pomegranate is, it grows on the tree and then you open it and it has these beautiful little seeds and it's just incredible fruit, right? So as he was walking and he saw these pomegranate and he had shahwa, he had this desire for the pomegranate, right? So, so I took one and I cracked it open and I found that it was spoiled, it was rotten. So I left it and I kept going. He's like, then I came across a man and the man was surrounded by hornets. Okay, this man is surrounded by hornets. 
And he says salam to him. He says salamu alaykum. The man says wa alaykum as salam Ibrahim. Calls him by his name. He says kaifa araftani. How did you know who I am? He said the one who was close to Allah, he's aware of some things. You know, he says You know, like I'm close to Allah, so I knew what your name was. This is not an act of arrogance, by the way. In this person's case, anyways, I don't want to mess with you and hyperbole and so on. Just, if it's not struggling for you, just imagine that it's hyperbole. So the man says, I didn't know. You know, some people, they know things. So I know your name. So Maddox says, clearly you have a high state with Allah. Right, clearly you have a high position with Allah because you know my name, right? Like, I don't know you and you know my name. There's obviously something here. This is pre-Facebook, obviously. Right? It's not like... <laughs> He didn't have Ibrahim and Khawas wasn't on he didn't have a public profile page so the person knew him even though he didn't meet him. He knew his name. He said, So you have a high state with Allah, why don't you ask Allah to protect you from these hornets? So the guy responded to him, he said, You also have a high state with Allah, why don't you ask Allah to protect you from the pomegranate? <laughs> the pomegranate that you had shahwa for, why don't you ask Allah to protect you from this pomegranate? He said, Because the desire that led you to that pomegranate will give you pleasure right now and will give you pain in the hereafter. And this that I'm dealing with with the hornets right now is going to give me pain right now and pleasure in the hereafter. See that the idea? You don't have to apply it to hornets. You can apply it to any other thing in life that you're struggling with. But he's saying, why don't you make dua then? Allah protects you from the pomegranate. So this is the story of Ibrahim al-Khawaz. Imam al-Ghazali mentions it in the Ahya. So why is this important? It's important because it gives us the opportunity to elevate then to that higher level. As I said, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us to not be at this base level of dirt. To be, to be at a higher level that goes beyond that dirt. And this is very much the concept that is mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's mentioned in Imam al-Nawi's 40 hadith. Where he says, لا That nobody believes until their desires fall in line with what I brought. Prophet said, Nobody believes truly until their desires fall in line with what I brought. And we talked about this before. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also mentions this in a number of places in the Quran. That the one who is afraid of their standing in front of Allah and they prevent their nafs from its desires, then the reward of that person is paradise. They're, they're worried about being accountable in front of Allah. So they want to stop themselves. In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, Don't follow your desires. Don't follow your desires because they will lead you astray from the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then, of course, this then relates to following the Messenger As we mentioned before, loving the Messenger, fighting your desires. Why does he talk about fighting the desires and the nafs right after the love of the Prophet is because that's what's stopping you. Your nafs are stopping us. It's our nafs that gets in the way of us truly loving the Messenger. It's the nafs that gets in the way of truly following the Messenger and that following is needed. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, No, by your Lord, they have not believed until they make you the arbiter. That they, they make you the arbiter and what follows happens between them. They don't find in their heart any, you know, they, they, they don't find any problem with that. They're fully submitted to it. That you, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, are their arbiter in all of their affairs. You're the one that they go back to. That it's not befitting for the believing man or woman that if Allah and His Messenger وسلم, have dec- decreed something, that they have their own choice in it. It's Allah and His Messenger's decree. So this is, you know, all of this is part of fighting the nafs, is a part of being able to submit then to that guidance that is necessary to submit to. Uh, some of the salaf. They said about the verse that we've mentioned so many times now. You know, this verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands the Prophet to tell him, You know, if you love Allah, then follow the Messenger. Some of the Salaf, they said, actually, people were claiming that they loved the Prophet. 
They were claiming that they loved Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They were making this claim to love. And making claims is its own issue. You know, but they were making this claim to love. Saying, we love Allah. We, we, they, and, and there was not, you know, probably not action behind it. They're making this claim. So, so then Allah tested them with this verse. They were making the claim that they love Allah, so Allah tested them with this verse. This verse said, if the, if the love is true, show me the evidence of the love. Follow the Messenger So the source, Ibn Rajab, the great commentator on the 40 hadith, he said, the source of all ma'asi and the source of all bid'ah, the source of all sin and the source of all innovation is preferring one's desires over what Allah and His Messenger want. This is the source of all of it. All of, all of sin and all of innovation in religion is from preferring the self over Allah and His Messenger So they say, and this is the verse from Surah Al-Qasas, If they don't accept your call, then know that they are simply following their desires. If they don't accept your call, then know that they are simply following their desires. 2850. This is directed to the Prophet Your call is there. They're not accepting your call, it's because they're following their desires. It's, it's mixed up. This came up recently because some of the Imams were talking about something. So in the end, it's all shahwa. It's all shahwa. Everyone has to struggle against this, and this leads to all kinds of problems at all levels. Nobody's, nobody's free from this. You know, one of the great, actually, fitness that people of knowledge face, they say that people of knowledge, you know, some of them, uh, that the person of knowledge, they love uh, opinions and pieces of knowledge that are rare. You know, that they, they came up with something. Like, you know, we missed this. Recently, there was a claim, I won't expose the person. Uh, it's online and whatever. There was a claim, and I didn't listen to it, so I can't say it in detail. But everyone else listened, many other people listened to it. That um, we've mis- Muslims have misunderstood the story of Ibrahim salam and his son, and how Allah asked him to sacrifice his son. That we misunderstood this, and actually the way that we're supposed to understand it is this. It's not my. It's not my inclination. People of great. If one person was of the opinion of something, fine. Maybe they misunderstood it. It's possible. But if an entire ummah of knowledgeable and righteous and good people misunder, quote unquote, misunderstood something, it's very. I don't know. So some people. Sometimes people like. And even for students, students that they want to find out and they want to learn those things that other people haven't learned or other people don't know. So when you go to them and you tell them, yeah, I found out about this and this, and I found out about that and that, and everyone's like, wow, mashallah, this person knows so many things. They're so well-read. And their opinion of you being well-read, does that benefit you in the hereafter? It doesn't benefit you at all. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and it's the beginning of Surah Ali Imran, says about the Qur'an, as we talked about before, I think we talked about this, that the Qur'an has verses, some of them are very clear. This is the foundation of the book. It's these verses that are very clear. And some of them are ambiguous. Those who have the sickness in their heart, they follow that which is ambiguous. So we go down this route. All of the mahkamat are there. Everything you need to have a strong relationship with Allah is there. Everything you need to know about life. Everything you need to know about death. Everything you need to know how to come closer to Allah is there. But I don't want to follow that. I'm going to go for this thing. This thing is a sickness in the heart. That's why we keep saying over and over and over again. The way to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is بِنَفْتَرَدْتُهُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Nothing brings someone closer to Him except like that which He has obligated. I like the qiyam on there. I like the extra account of nafil. I like this charity that I gave the text. I'm glad you liked it. Did you fulfill the obligation? 
Did you, were you good to your parents? Did you take care of your family? Did you make the income that you need to pay for your kids? Did you, did you treat your employees and your co-workers well? Did you pray your five prayers on time? Did you fast in Ramadan? Did you make up your fast in Ramadan before you go and enjoy the fast of Ashura, for example? Although there's different fiqh on it. But the, the point is the nafs. How is the nafs responding? The nafs sometimes will take you to that which is optional before it takes you to that which is obligatory. That's when you know it's about the nafs and it's not about Allah. That the foundation is there. So sometimes the nafs then take you all of these wiggle into all of these different directions. So all of the source of it is following the desire. So the more we struggle against ourselves, um, and, and the more we do so, the more you see this effort that comes as a result. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide us and to forgive us. Ameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam 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 w